You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Because there's nothing like a weekend pause with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Now arriving, Washington, D.C., Union Station. Please watch the gap when you exit the train. How does it feel to be walking? The floor it's nice. It's nice. It's exciting. I love being here. Why do you I, love being here? Well, you can just smell the power in the hallways, can't you? Or the lack thereof. <laughs> well, the question is, is Washington more like Veep or House of Cards? It's a little of each. Raw ambition, manipulation, calculation. That's on Veep, right? And then a lot of, um, what's the word, Brian, when you really suck up to someone? Oh, you always think of the best words, Katie. (laughs) A lot of sycophants. Or sycophancy. Sycophancy. Have you guys ever been to the Capitol? I mean, you see all these politicians on TV giving speeches, kissing babies, eating a lot of unhealthy junk at state fairs. But there's a place where our representatives are actually doing their work, office buildings in Washington, D.C., that you can walk right into. Well, after the metal detector, that is. You can get a snack in the cafeteria, peek backstage, and see how our government really works. You want to... uh... Just describe where we are and oh. what we're doing. Yeah. It feels a little like old home week for me because here we are in the Hart Senate office building. When I lived in Washington, I covered a lot of stories here. And uh, I have to say it's a beautiful building. It is. It was uh, very famous for cost overruns, for a huge delay in its construction. It cost more than $300 million in 2016 dollars to build. How do you know this? I did a little research beforehand. And this is named after Gary Hart. No, Phil Hart. Good. Who's a uh, <laughs> longtime senator from Michigan. I was wondering that. Because My friend and co-host Brian Goldsmith and I recently traveled here to the heart of the Capitol to talk with Senator Al Franken. 
Now, most of the time on the show, we talk to our guests in the studio, but this time we went on a little field trip. Yeah, you, you did make my mom sign that permission slip. <laughs> That's right. And, and we should let you know that we were there at a pretty important moment, just a couple weeks before the Democratic convention, a few days before the Republican convention. That's right. Bernie Sanders had just endorsed Hillary. Right. And it was the week right after the tragic shootings in Baton Rouge, St. Paul, and Dallas that had captured all of our attention. People immediately came up to talk to you. How are you? Nice to see you. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. I'm Texas. We're in Texas. Yeah. Uh, four. Oh. Okay. Okay. Dallas area, been praying a lot. That oh, chaos. I know. Awful. Awful. I mean, obviously, you live close we by. We were seriously in our home. Like, we weren't going out anywhere. Like, I wasn't going to leave the house. I've got two kids and um, his son. And it's just a sense of um, hate. I mean, that's the only word. Like, it's awful. It's just, you, you can't even feel safe to walk out of your house because some dumbass is going to shoot somebody, you know? Like, it's it's awful. Just being on our knees, praying, and praying for all the officers that we know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Senseless, senseless murders. How do you feel about the African-American men who were who were shot as well earlier in the week? Um, honestly, I feel like, I feel like we cannot focus on a specific race because it's happening everywhere. White, black, Hispanic. I mean, there are murders everywhere. As a nation, everybody's life matters. No less than anybody else's. No more than anybody else's. So it, it infuriates me that anybody has died, that anybody has been singled out, that anybody feels like their life is more important than anybody else's because it's not. We're all equal. And until everybody starts to believe that, this hate will continue. It felt like everybody was a little fragile on the day we went to Washington, and people had a lot on their minds and some really important things to talk about. As a mom, my first thing is to protect my child. So I teach him to be respectful no matter what. Um, That's just not a battle that I want to have to fight, and I don't want him to have to fight. So if they say sit down, you sit. If they say... You know, and, and it's hard as a, a woman to teach him that because I don't want him to feel like he's being demeaned or he's less than. But I don't want to have to identify my child one day as, you know. In the morgue. Right. So I, I teach him, you say, yes, sir. You, I don't care if you didn't do it. You just do what they tell you to do because it, it's a matter of, that, that's not a battle that I want to fight. What do you think ha- needs to happen to to improve this situation? Because it seems like the country is such a tinderbox right now, and no one wants to see police officers slain. That was such a tragedy. But no one wants to see people of color being mistreated by the police. And what do you think needs to happen to make the situation less combustible, if you will. I think it goes back to that saying, seek first to understand than to be understood. It is about all lives matter, but you have to remember that black people as a community have been the less than group for 200, I mean, we've been fighting. And so at some point you just get tired. Now, is it appropriate to retaliate 
and slaughter officers just because you're mad and frustrated? No. So that sets us back for what we're fighting for. It's not a us against them. Police brutality is the issue. It's not the police. It's not white Americans. It's not black people. It's we want to be treated the same way as another person who's stopped for a traffic stop. If my son is out and he gets stopped by the police, I should not be in fear and in tears about what's going on with my son if he's not at home. Do you agree with that? I learned something and I hadn't even left the lobby. This is the kind of energy I think you get in this building. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Enjoy Washington. I really appreciate Thank you talking you. to us. Thank you. Wow. Okay, bye. One of the perks of my job as a journalist is that everyday people come up to me like this and share their personal thoughts. Another perk is that I get to have serious FaceTime with the people who set policy and make the laws that affect our lives. Are we going up? Sorry, don't kill us. Don't you hate when people do that? I always want to close it, like, close, close, close. (laughs) (laughs) That's really nice. I know. Not everyone gets this kind of access. I'm really lucky. I do. 309, this way. And I want to share it with you. So we're walking into (laughs) Senator Franken's office. Nice. Oh, yeah, Marge Gunderson. Hey, you betcha. How you guys doing? Nice to see you. Love yourself to any water. Thank you. No Minnesota treats? What are Minnesota treats? Uh, So we used to have uh, Post-its. Oh, yum. I know. Really delicious. Lots of fiber. Um, I really like the sticky part. Yeah. Hey. How are you? Nice to see you, Senator. Good to see you. How are you? That's Al Franken. He's a senator from Minnesota, but that may not be why you know his name. Because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, People like me. He went from comedy to political talk radio. Broadcasting live from Minneapolis, Minnesota, the Al Franken Show is on the air. To the Senate. Thank you, everybody. But he nearly didn't make it there. He squeaked in in 2008 by just 312 votes. Uh, And I am so excited to finally be able to get to work for the people of Minnesota. But now, in his second term, Senator Al Franken is one of the people shaping the world we live in. So I asked him, after seven years, are you still jazzed about coming into this office we're sitting in? No. <laughs> Not my own office. But, but if I, when I look at the Capitol, I do. When I get over the, there to the Capitol, I, I, get, I go, holy mackerel, I do that a lot. We saw very- But not my own office, you know, it's my office. I'm in here <laughs> well, a lot. it's quite lovely, I should say. It is, it's nice, it's One nice. of the things we noticed is two photos of Senator Paul Wellstone. Yep. Of Minnesota, who died in 2002 in a plane crash. Right, 11 days before the election. And ironically, he went to my high school, Senator Wellstone did, did. in Arlington, Virginia. Oh. And I know he is and continues to be one of your role models. Sure, yeah. Why? Well, he was a special guy. He was a passionate guy. He uh, cared about the little guy. That was, and he said some things that are not mantras. Or uh, he said, uh, "We all do better when we all do better." And uh, Minnesotans, Minnesota DFLers—that's the Democratic Farmer Labor Party. We say that all the time, but it's interesting when I say that around the country, especially to Democrats, 
they think about how simple and profound that is because we do, we do all do better when we all do better. We're, I grew up middle class, you know, I was born in, uh, 1951. Uh, I grew up in, in St. Louis Park, Minnesota, in a ring suburb. We had two bedroom, one bath house. My dad didn't graduate high school. My mom didn't graduate college. I thought I was the luckiest kid in the world because I was, because I was growing up middle class in St. Louis Park, in Minnesota, in America. And I felt like I could do anything I wanted. And I, and it's because the middle class, everything was expanding then. The middle class was expanding. And, uh, I do believe that we grow the economy from the middle. And what we've seen, uh, in the last, you know, 30, 40 years, has been this tendency to grow things at the top and hollow out the middle class. And I think that's why people are so so angry. The middle class, the bottom seems to have fallen out. Robert Reich did a whole documentary. We sure. were just, Brian and I were talking about it called Inequality for All. Yeah, and I basically saw it. saying the middle good. class is what fuels the entire economy because that those are where the consumers are, right? Of course. I mean, if, if the middle class is buying stuff, <laughs> the economy works. And if the middle class is hollowed out, if you're really, 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 really rich, you can buy only so much stuff. <laughs> you know, I mean, that there is a limit to how much you can buy, I guess. I mean, but the, the, the real economy is, is fueled by those in the middle. Do you think the fact that the middle class is struggling so much and the bottom has fallen out is one of the reasons we're seeing this upswing in populism during this Yeah, well, I think there's been a lot of anger, especially, uh, you know, there was an interesting statistic that came out or finding by some Princeton economists or something uh, a few months ago that we're seeing life expectancy drop for white people. And uh, a lot of it was uh, suicide and opioids and that kind of thing. And it hadn't dropped for Latinos or blacks. And I think it was be- it, it's partly in that white working class, middle class, who have expected things to get better and not seen it happen. I think that, that maybe in a sad way, the black and Latinos are, don't expect things necessarily. It isn't part of your inheritance that things automatically get better and that you'll be better off than your, than your parents or, more importantly, that your kids will be better off than you. And I think there's real a feeling of betrayal there. You, you know, you saw... Bernie and you saw Trump. And I think Bernie's analysis is, well, first of all, it's an analysis. <laughs> and Trump's is whatever it is. So I think Bernie was closer to the truth. But the fact is, this is globalization, automation, unions uh, under assault. Uh, Reich talks about that definitely in that in his book, and, and in his documentary, uh, all these things are contributing to, you know, there aren't a lot of jobs where you get a really good living and work for 40 years at the same job anymore. 
And, and the traditional political answer, at least for the last couple of decades, has been, oh, well, we can't reverse globalization, so we need to train workers for the jobs of the future. Is that enough? Is that sufficient? And if it isn't, what else should be done? Well, first of all, it's, that's a really good idea. We, we do need to train people for those jobs. And this is something I, I believe in workforce training. I believe that you don't have to go to a four-year college, that you can go to a community and technical college and get credentials and start working in some advanced manufacturing um, uh, facility and uh, with a, a company and continue to get your education, get it paid for by your employer. I've seen this a lot, and I've seen it in Minnesota a lot. And I remember right, I took office a little late because you might remember it was a close election. And uh, right uh, after I got in office, the first recess, I went back to Minnesota, and I was in Alexandria, Minnesota, which is in uh, sort of central, western, north, central, western Minnesota. And in Douglas County, the county seat of Douglas County, unemployment was uh, about two and a half points lower than in the rest of the state. And part of the reason was they had a great community and technical college, one of the highest ranked in the country. And they have a um, food packaging industry there. There's the Silicon Valley of food packaging. Someone had to figure out how to get potato chips into a bag without breaking them, and they figured that out. And they have a number of companies, uh, manufacturers, advanced manufacturers to do that. And they had the high school, during the summer, kids would take industrial arts. I had a, an industrial arts camp. <laughs> so, and I said, this is working here. These kids have these, or these adults now have these advanced skills, and there's a ladder where you can move up. So that isn't the whole answer, but it's part of the answer. It's like anything, it's silver buckshot, not a silver bullet. It's one thing to train young people, right? But what about these middle-aged, blue-collar workers who are suddenly finding themselves without a job and... That is no, a right. real issue. You're right. The 50-year-old guy who got you know hit, uh, we had a, a summit at the White House, sort of on rehiring people who have been unemployed for a while. And I went back to Minnesota to do roundtables on it. So many of these people were in their 50s because people don't want to hire necessarily people in their 50s. And it was much harder job market for them. So you're absolutely right. There are people that got hit by the Great Recession right at the wrong moment in their careers. And a lot of these people that were still unemployed were doing certain kinds of training, but a lot of them were really employable. I mean, really had a great experience, and you'd go, oh, my goodness, you should, you should, I'd hire you. I wasn't hiring at the time. Some of their manufacturing uh, firms were move to China, move to other countries. Sure. And, and Mexico. And Mexico. Yeah, well, this is the trade issue, and this is why uh, Trump tapped into something that, that was very uh, against sort of conservative Republican um, uh, philosophy. If they, I were a 50-year-old guy and my company moved overseas and I was left high and dry, I'd be pretty pissed off too. Yeah, well, there, there are, I know a lot of those people. And, uh, you know, in Minnesota, we're 
uh, we're recovering, but I got to tell you that, you know, I'm against TPB and I'm against it for a reason. I don't think they, um, the labor provisions in it are right. I don't think um, the currency manipulation stuff has been taken care of. Uh, but people are very emotional about this subject. It's yeah. really a conundrum, isn't it? How do you be, become part of the global economy and yet protect your own? Therein lies the rub, right? Well, yeah, and it's about enforcing, <laughs> it's about writing good agreements and enforcing them. It strikes me that you have to know so much, Senator Franken, about so many issues at, in your job. Do you ever get overwhelmed? And did you? you never. Know, Never? <laughs> <laughs> no, that never happens. Because <laughs> I stay on top of everything. <laughs> you always wanted to be a politician. You ran for president of your seventh grade class with a very unique campaign slogan. Do you remember what it was? Uh, don't spit in a man's face unless his mustache is on fire. That's right. Ding, 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 ding. And I lost. No, How could they you said lose you won. That? That slogan. No, no. Oh, wait a minute. No, no, no. You're right. I won. I won. I won. I won. I won that. Then I lost uh, eighth grade. And then I ran for vice president in ninth, and I got that. My sister ran for president of our elementary school, and my mom put up a campaign poster above the water fountain, and it said, free water courtesy Emily Curry. Oh, nice. (laughs) Did she win? That was clever. She did. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, good slogan really helps. I remember I felt very bitter because I lost, uh, I, I got us a mixer. That was my big achievement. I got a mixer. Mazel. Yeah, thank you. And it was, uh, the Beatles were very big. This is when the Beatles were big. And uh, the theme of the, the mixer was Peace, Peace Me. And it was the Valley of the Jolly Green Giant, which is in Minnesota. <laughs> and it was, it was a very successful a mixer, and yet I was not reelected. You are fairly new to the Senate, and I'm wondering if, <laughs> if you know, well, relatively, I mean, eight no, years. I am. I, am. I, I mean, was wondering, I, said, I think to, that explains why. Compared to some. And I'm just curious, what did you think you were getting yourself into, and are you disillusioned? Um, well, uh, you know, I wish I could remember what I thought it was going to be, because then I could tell you whether I'm disappointed. But I, I really enjoy this. Uh, I get things done. Paul Wellstone said politics is not about winning. It's about improving people's lives. And that's what I tried to do in so many different ways, and I've been successful in many of them. And then in others, it's incredibly frustrating, of course. It's very frustrating. What's the most frustrating thing? Right now, I don't know what we're doing to address. The, I just haven't heard any any real attempt to address just what's happened this last week in terms of, I mean, we know that people of color get profiled. And we know there's something we need to do about this. And I don't feel like we're, I've heard us addressing it here. Let's talk about the police shootings that we've seen, witnessed in this, I guess you could describe Fourth of July week in America as a very different kind of hell week 
two shootings, first in Baton Rouge and then in St. Paul, and then the shootings of those police officers in Dallas. Is Capitol Hill really the right place to come up with a solution for this? Or should police departments across the country start really acknowledging there's an issue here? I think, you know, ironically, I think Dallas is a police department that did do that. It's true. But we need to address this. And it's a national problem that doesn't uh, get fixed by something, some one piece of legislation or a number of pieces of legislation gets fixed one community at a time. And Philando Castile was your constituent. Yep. There was an AP story that came out a couple of days ago that he was stopped at least 52 times right. by police before he was shot. What, what can be done about that sort of thing? Well, uh, we, 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 <laughs> one, we have to, I think we have to have police, the composition of police forces reflect the composition of the communities that they serve. I think that would be very helpful. You know, it's interesting to me that the Black Lives Matter movement makes some people so angry. And I was interviewing somebody when I walked into the building before we sat down from Fort Worth, and she was saying, you know, all lives matter. It shouldn't just be one group. I don't think that person's quite understanding the context. <laughs> I mean, and... and But it, you hear that time and time again. I know, but what it means is, is that Black, what Black Lives Matters is saying, like, this is happening, it's happened, it's historically happened, we now have videotape, but this has historically happened, and this, it matters it's as if black lives don't matter. I, That's what they're... I know I'm not course, explaining to you, Yes, Katie, of course. But, but I'm I trying think, to explain to the listener here. Right. Uh, but how do how do we keep and some I think white Mayor Americans Giuliani, from being what, what alienated? Mayor, but former Mayor Giuliani said the other day on whatever show he was on, Face Nation, about, you know... Black Lives Matter is a race is inherently racist. He's not. He's either deliberately not getting it or isn't paying much attention. We'll be right back to our conversation with Al Franken after a quick break. From BBC Radio Four. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. 
you have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Let's get back into our conversation with Al Franken. So we're sitting here in your Senate office. Um, why don't we kind of go back to before you entered this profession and um, cover some of the years between that failed eighth grade class president mm-hmm. campaign mm-hmm. and the successful Senate one. Yeah. Um, I stopped running after that. <laughs> <laughs> For about 40 years. Yeah. But you got bit by the political bug very early. You were, I think, always engaged in these issues. How did that start? Started with my parents, uh, as I think it probably usually does. Uh, we ate dinner on tray tables watching uh, the news. So we watched uh, either Cronkite or Huntley Brinkley. And good my night, mom David. was a- Good night, Chet. Yeah. Remember that? <laughs> well, I used to say that to my mom and dad oh. before we went to bed at night. I'd yell, good night, David, and they'd yell, good night, Chet. Well, maybe that's why you went into what you went into. (laughs) Um, By the way, these were not TV dinners. My mom was a really good cook, so I just want to make sure, because people have gotten the idea that we ate TV dinners on these tray tables. No, no, this was, we always had a fresh vegetable (laughs) and a protein. Anyway, so we would watch when I was 11, 10, 11, 12 years old, watched civil rights demonstrations in the South. And when the sheriffs would put fire hoses or dogs or billy clubs on the demonstrators, my dad would point to the TV and say, no Jew can be for that. No Jew can be for that. My dad grew up in New York, and he also inhaled a pipe for 50 years. So (laughs) he sounded like that. No Jew can be for that. And um, we knew exactly what he meant. Because we, I was born, as I said, I think I said in 51, the Holocaust was pounded into our heads. And this was, and my dad had been a Republican. He was a, like a Jacob Javits Republican. And um, he became a Democrat that year because Barry Goldwater in 64 anyway. And didn't never look back. So, uh, so that was it. It was basic, the basic... It's the same damn issue, if you think about it. Do you think that something's been lost in our country? You know, you describe this almost idyllic scene where you're watching the evening news with your family, talking about things, learning about the world. That's really not done so much anymore because of the changing landscape of the media. There's a lot more. um, Well, there's that. Uh, We all don't have only three uh, networks to watch and listen to. And so we don't have that shared experience. And then what what you have is, you know, the sorting out of America where people tend to live 
with people who have the same political views that they do. They and watch to, the people who have the same political Fox views. And watch Fox and some watch MSNBC and some watch CNN. Um, and some listen to NPR and some listen to Rush Limbaugh. And what was the title of your book about Rush Limbaugh? The, it was called Rush Limbaugh's Big Fat Idiot and Other Observations. And the intent was to talk about the loss of civility in our discourse. It was really, if, if you read the book, <laughs> that's what it was about. And it was ironic. And uh, a lot of what I uh, did in comedy and, and, and still do in my every day is, is, is irony. And during my uh, uh, first race, a lot of that was, um, uh, a lot of my humor went through the dehumorizer. Uh, what's my, the what's the dehumorizer? It was a fifteen million dollar machine that my <laughs> opponent put together using uh, some Soviet era technology that stripped humor. There was a out there was a any, Playboy article, as I recall, that got some attention. Yeah, what was that titled? Pornorama, and it was about. There's a reason for. I, I wrote an article for Playboy for their millennial issue. They had asked William Buckley, he wrote for it, and uh, Isaac Asimov, and me. And uh, I thought that, okay, it's a Playboy, it's for their millennial issue. Uh, you know, I want to do a parody of Playboy. And Playboy would do these, um, uh, very often do, an art article, do articles on the newest technologies. And I figure, since it's Playboy... Uh, what would the what's this new millennium going to bring in? So it was all about kind of virtual sex and things like that. And um, it, it, if you read the piece, it'll prove that I was not intending to run for the Senate <laughs> uh, eight years later. I'm going to have to Google that. Uh, sure, go ahead. <laughs> Let's get yeah. back to the Senate, Al. You were talking about how dysfunctional the Senate is and how you can't how it often is often very, is. yeah, often is very dysfunctional. What is the root problem of the Senate's dysfunction? Well, uh, I think there are a lot of things. I think that um, our politics, and I was kind of writing about this in Rush Limbaugh is a big fat idiot, and that's why it really was about the breakdown in the civility of discourse. And there was a chapter on that on Gingrich, who had put a list of words for Republicans to to use to talk about Democrats. <laughs> and it was like sick and traitor and corrupt. I mean, it was literally a list of words that was sent out to candidates saying, you can learn to talk like Newt. And there was also a, a real run against Washington and against government and people in government are bad and don't live in Washington, don't bring your family to Washington. And, you know, this town, I guess, used to be a lot different. Uh, you know, you would bring your family to Washington, you live here, and you go back to your district when you go back to your district, but you wouldn't go back, uh, you wouldn't keep your family in your district and go back home on weekends and not visit them while you go around your district. And what that meant was is that your family, your kid might play on the same baseball team as another congressman from or senator from a different party as his kid. And it's hard to not like, you know, your your kid's teammate's father. 
and people had more time. And now it's so much fundraising and so much rushing back to your state to campaign and that sort of thing. I think that's part of it. I think part of it is is that when the Senate is up for grab, as it is this time, as it was last time, that uh, there's more jockeying. And I think there was sort of a settled um, Democratic majority for a big period of time uh, during the uh, 50s and 60s and 70s that, uh, you know, that and that's easy for me to say, they were Democrats in, in the majority, but there's tended to be sort of a, okay, this isn't about the next cycle. This isn't about next November. We're going to just actually do our job here. But now it's all about re-election. Steve Israel wrote about that, the congressman from Long Island, about how much time is spent fundraising. And right. do you guys hang out? Do you hang out with other senators? Do you have lunch in the Senate dining and eat Senate bean soup with Republicans? I, I have. <laughs> I don't do it a lot. I hardly ever eat in the Senate dining room. Does right? anybody? Because to me, you've got to have a place where people can congregate and get to know each other. One of the things that we do, we have, and I just came from it, the Senate or Democratic Caucus lunch. So we have lunch on Tuesday and Thursdays, essentially, as a caucus. And the Republicans have it three days a week. Why don't you guys caucus together occasionally? Well, I have had, uh, I just did a bipartisan lunch with Lisa Murkowski. I've been trying to promote these bipartisan activities. Um, During my first term, Franny and I would go out regularly with the Enzies and the Johans. Senator Enzi from Wyoming, Senator Johans, who's left from Nebraska and their wives and, and uh, Tom Udall and Jill and me and Franny, would, we'd all have dinner. We'd trade off going to each other's houses, and I'd like to start that again. Let's talk about the campaign because it has just been the most insane campaign of my lifetime, certainly, I would assume, of yours as well. I don't know. Uh, you know, 68 was tragic, obviously, and... Uh, but yes, I mean, I think that that uh, the Republican nominee, uh, she, what's his name, uh, is uh, is of a just of a different, um, quantumly different than any other nominee we've had in terms of they're 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 part of uh, what I've seen over the last few years. I, I'm kind of a uh, policy. I mean, I don't think I'm a policy wonk, but I do try to get into the areas where we're legislating. I like to be a legislator. So in education and healthcare and those areas, that's way more why I, I came here than anything. And then in telecommunications, I was against the uh, Comcast Time Warner deal and net neutrality is important to me. But those, those are the things I care about. But I just don't think he thinks about any of this stuff at all. I don't think he just, he'll say, I um, i have a good brain. I know more than the generals about Syria and Iraq. He'll say that. And it'll be just one of a million things he'll say that are just absurd. And yet he will be the nominee. How do you explain that? 
Well, I try to, you know, it, it's happened. So, and uh, observing what's happening, I'm, I'm not, uh, I, I guess he tapped into this anger that we were talking about. And uh, he certainly staked out a, um, you know, an anti-trade, which I think is different on his side and tapped into that feeling among those, uh, a lot of, lot of voters on both sides, of course. Of the aisle, so I think he had a lot of some crossover in, in in many states, and I also think that the media contributed to it a little bit by having him on constantly. And the guy can be funny and can be charming. It's worn off a little on me, but um, and fascinating. It was kind of fascinating. So I think that. Um, a lot of America is, loves Donald Trump, and a lot of America is shaking their heads going, like, what's your theory on how this happened? You do you know think, I mean? we've, do you think <laughs> we've, talked in, we've talked enough about Donald Trump? No. <laughs> I think we should talk only about him for the rest of this. A big question, Mark, I think about this campaign is whether young people who are so enthusiastic about Bernie Sanders are really going to come out and vote in November. I think they will. I, I think they will. This is, you know, uh, I did not see the event with Bernie and, and Hillary today. Well, I heard it went well. And I think that's, uh, Bernie said he's going to do everything in his power to see that Trump doesn't win. And I think that means he's going to be stumping for her. I think that that's going to help. And I think, you know, when you look at the issues and you look at something as simple, as simple something as important as climate change, and millennials know this is a real thing. And the, there is a scientific, overwhelming scientific consensus. And the sea level's rising. That happens for a reason. Uh, and it is the existential issue of our time. And boy, it affects millennials more than, you know, I mean, I have, I have grandchildren now, so... I'm a senator, and I don't want my grandson, you know, Joe. I have a three-year-old grandson, and I don't want him 50 years from now going, Grandpa, you knew there was climate change. Why didn't you do anything about it? And also, why are you still alive? You're, <laughs> you're 115. That's ridiculous that you're alive. I'll go, well, because of all the scientific developments, all the funding of NIH I did instead of on climate change. You and Larry King are doing that. What's it called when you are frozen? Oh, oh, um, I'm not doing it. If Larry's doing it, good for him, but I'm not doing it. He did it years ago, actually. <laughs> I, I got that. That was good. Thank you. Yes. So, so give us your prediction for the fall. I, I am not a prognosticator. Uh, that's not what I do. That's not what I do. I thought uh, Cindy Lauper was going to be a lot bigger than Madonna. <laughs> do you think Hillary Clinton's going to win? I do. But I don't know what the margin's going to be. I don't know. I not predict anything. I'm hoping for, you know, I'm hoping for a large win, a blowout. I'm hoping for that. I'm really, I've been working for our Democratic Senate candidates, and I want to take back the Senate so we can have the agenda here and not have to do filibusters to get on a gun vote and, you know, those kind of things. 
Two, two last questions. 70%, I believe, of the electorate feel that Hillary Clinton is not trustworthy. That's a devastating That's bad. That's number. Not good. How does she fix that? I don't know exactly. I can tell you this. I've known her for 22 years, and I find her totally trustworthy. I, I, um, I also... Th- I just know her as one of the hardest working, uh, the hardest working person I know. Uh, someone who is has through their career been dedicated to helping uh, children, helping poor people, helping uh, women. Why don't uh, people trust her? Why don't people see that? Well, I think there's been just a ton and ton and ton of constant, you know, opposition to the Clintons. Both her and her husband. I think her husband did, you know, unfortunately did something that made people not trust him. And I, I hope she'll have the opportunity to be president and and that Americans will learn to trust her, the, the ones who don't. Do you think she bears any responsibility for that? I think she'll say, you know, she, she will say, for example, on the uh, email that she made a mistake. And so she does bear some responsibility for that. I also think that if you look at her responses on these things, I don't think she was lying. I think she did not know that she sent three uh, classified things because they had uh, partially marked. I think that, as usual, there's a battle over this in terms of messaging, and they're going to be considered. She lied, she lied, she lied. And uh, if people know the full story, I don't think she did. If Paul Wellstone were alive today, Senator, what do you think he would make of this whole campaign? The players, the rhetoric? Well, I think he'd be out there fighting, you know, just like I think I am. <laughs> I don't. I don't quite have the... There was some power that he had. He used to, basically, the last three minutes of his any presentation he gave were this real, real energetic, tub-thumping thing where he'd get people on their feet. And the only time I get that to happen is, like, if I imitate him doing it. I do an impression of him. But uh, I, I think he would be, uh, I, I think he would be amazed and saddened by some of this, of course. You may not be able to compete with Paul Wellstone, but your grandson looked pretty in awe of you in a photo we saw as we walked into your office. I love that photo. It's like my favorite photo. What was going on? Uh, It was a, um, uh, I I was sworn in for my second term, and it was just a party we had for that. And everybody was there in this big hearing room, and he was with his grandma, and then he just and 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 mom and 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 his dad, and he just walked over to me, and uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful photo. For those of you listening, uh, I can't. It's it's amazing. He's staring <laughs> up at you, and that's probably, as you said, who you think about when you make decisions well, yeah. in this office. Yeah, he's, he's older now, of course, <laughs> as we all are. And so now he's three. 
but yeah, being a grandparent uh, is a great, great thing. And uh, it does make you think that what we do here is important to generations beyond us. That's a nice way to end things, Senator Al Franken. Thank you for hanging out with us in your office. You bet. So I really enjoyed that interview, but I'm not sure I was surprised by anything he said. I wasn't super surprised, but I have to say I was really impressed because it reminded me how fluent senators have to be on such a myriad of issues. And it made me think, God, it's hard to be a senator. And even though he's a lot more relaxed and comfortable with the job now that he's been reelected and he's not known as Landslide Al, ironically, anymore— Uh, you could still see the weight of responsibility on his shoulders. He took the job very seriously. Definitely. He doesn't want to be, you know, Don Rickles all the time. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, he's clearly a highly, highly intelligent guy. And I think he believes fiercely in the direction he wants to take the country. I mean, he talked about Paul Wellstone and talked about being a progressive and talking about doing the work. I mean, he is a very, he's a very funny guy, but he's also a very serious guy. And gosh darn it, people do like him. So we want to thank Senator Franken and his staff for making the interview possible. It was a lot of fun. And we're going to do a lot of interviews like this. Clearly, we want to interview bold-faced names, but also people who just have bold things to say. And one of the great things about social media and the telephone, quite frankly, is we get to hear from you all as well. So we want to know what you'd like to discuss, who you'd like us to talk to. So you can leave us a message on this line, 929-224-4637. Brian is standing by to take your calls. (laughs) 24-7. I'm just sitting by the phone. That number again is 929-224-4637. And while we're at it, we want to thank the team at Earwolf, Chris Bannon, Greta Cohn, the Right Reverend John Delore. We want to thank Mark Phillips, who composed our theme music. Which I really love, by the way. And one more thing, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast if you could, because it really helps other listeners find the show. That does it for us. Brian, this was fun, wasn't it? Yes, (laughs) ma'am. Anyway, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Yes, we do. Thanks. I took a few ashtrays. I hope that's okay. (laughs) I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l e e s a dot com slash iHeart. 
I'm late. I'm late. Three very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com.